Tonight on Farage, is it time we actually recognised the Taliban and made them our allies in the fight against ISIS? We'll look at the schools. They're all going back this week. Some teaching unions saying we're going to need some much tougher restrictions than are proposed. And I'm joined on Talking Pints by William Hanson, the country's leading expert on etiquette and behaviour. I'm going to have to mind my P's and Q's. Well, in terms of our relationship with the Taliban, it's almost difficult to make up where we are right now. If we go back to the 1980s, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, the opposition to them was the Mujahideen. And guess who funded? Guess who backed the Mujahideen? Well, it was the West, predominantly the United States of America, on the basis that my enemy's enemy is my friend. But, of course, the Mujahideen morphed into the Taliban. They took over Afghanistan. Uh, they allowed it to be a place where people like Osama bin Laden could act, plot and plan with impunity. They imposed upon their own population a pretty brutal regime. And we have been either directly at war or indirectly at war with the Taliban for the last 20 years. Us joining America very shortly after they went into, into Afghanistan in October 2001. For the last few years, the fighting, the hand-to-hand -hand fighting on the ground fighting has been done by the Afghan army. But be in no doubt, the Americans, the Royal Air Force and others have been providing a lot of military support. They've been the enemy, a terrorist organisation, an extreme Islamist organisation, one who are deeply intolerant of all minorities and basically don't want women to live anything even approaching a normal life as we would see it in Western society. But now, after 20 years, the last American soldier has left. Those planes left Afghanistan last night. Uh, and this picture, sort of slightly haunting picture, this is the last American troop boarding and heading off back to the USA. We've gone. Not just our ground forces, but for now, our air support, everything has gone. The Taliban are in charge. There is an opposition movement there within the country, but if we're being honest about it, it's only confined to a small geographical area and, for the moment, without considerable arms and support. Frankly, there isn't much we can do. And yet something very odd has happened, because when we saw the horrible suicide bomb take place just outside the gates of Kabul airport, it was conducted by an ISIS organisation. And it was the first time I saw the Taliban effectively helping American and British troops. And I thought, this is odd. Suddenly, are the Taliban becoming our ally? And I've heard Boris Johnson in the last 24 hours saying that provided the Taliban behave allow the rest of our people out, the rest of our interpreters out, whatever British people are still there, provided they give safe passage and provided they don't return to some form of barbarism, well, uh, perhaps in these circumstances we can recognise them. Jake Sullivan, the American boss of National Security Today, said much the same thing. It's as if the group of people we've been at war with for 20 years are now effectively becoming a form of ally against ISIS and other groups who perhaps 
are more extreme than the Taliban in the sense that the Taliban confine themselves to Afghanistan, whereas ISIS want global revolution. Now, having said that, uh, Bagram Airport uh, is the scene, of course, last night, uh, where we saw a couple of extraordinary things happen that make me think that actually the Taliban are not good guys. We saw a TV broadcast, much like this one, and in the middle of it, suddenly in come, you know, a couple. I mean, look at that, look at that. The guy's broadcasting. He's do he looks terrified, doesn't he? He's every right to be. The guy's broadcasting, and into the studio come the Taliban. Uh, that indicates to me that nothing's changed. We have plenty of reports of people being murdered outside their houses, people who have fought with the Allied forces, assisted us as interpreters over the last 20 years. And one of the most extraordinary things is that Joe Biden has left Afghanistan and left behind $85 billion worth of up-to-date, modern, functioning American military equipment. And last night we saw the Taliban going into one of the hangars. Uh, now, can you see, they're all dressed in American combat uniforms with night sights, and they've just discovered, yes, amongst the hall are some lovely helicopters. I mean, they frankly look like kids in a sweet shop. I find it difficult to believe that Biden could have left them with all this military equipment. When the British left Dunkirk, they made sure that every gun barrel was spiked, that no vehicle was operative. They smashed and destroyed everything. And yet, what Biden has done is to effectively arm the Taliban. So I think we're at a moment where the British and the Americans are on the verge of recognising the Taliban as the legitimate government of Afghanistan, and we will find common cause with them in fighting ISIS. And tonight, I want to ask you, should we be doing this? Should we recognise the Taliban if they meet some of our demands over the next few days and find common cause with them in the fight against ISIS? I absolutely think we should not. I think they're still a terrorist organisation. I don't believe we should do it. I want to know what you think. Please let me know your opinions. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Well, joining me now to discuss this very topic is the former head of counterterrorism at the Ministry of Defence and former senior British military advisor to the US Central Command, Major General Chip Chapman. Major General, good evening and thank you for joining us here on GB News. Good evening, Nigel. Do you hear what I just said? That basically ever since that bomb, I can see the British and American governments positioning ourselves into a working relationship with the Taliban government um, and doing it on the basis that ISIS are the really bad guys. Should we be doing this, in your opinion? Well, there's three layers of answers to that. The first one is not yet. The second one is don't need to. And the third one is might need to. So I'll just briefly explain each of them. So on the not yet, you're quite right to say that the enemy of the my enemy is my friend. And that's been a tool of statecraft for two and a half thousand years. And we know that covert diplomacy has gone on, that uh, CIA Director Burns and probably head of SIS, CMI6, have met with Barada, who was the public face of diplomacy in the Doha Agreement 
for the Taliban. Yeah. More importantly, they've met with General Bajar, who's the head of the army staff in, in, in Pakistan, particularly, of course, their pull on the inter-services intelligence. So not yet. Uh, only three countries recognized the Taliban government from 96 to 2001. That was the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. So until they show that they can govern in some sort of moderate way, but it won't be a Western modern way, moderate way, it's not yet. The second answer to the to do we need them uh, to recognize them to fight ISK is you don't need to. ISK and the Taliban hate each other. They hate each other because of the pragmatism that the Taliban have shown. That might seem strange to many people in the West, but the fact that they actually made an agreement with the Americans at Doha and the fact that they actually um, gave consent for the Americans to go out with consent uh, with their consent shows to those who are really hardcore jihadists that they've lost the plot. So don't necessarily need to, they hate each other. The third answer is you might need to because ISK is not actually the main show in town in the jihadi groups in um, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's not even one of the top, uh, top tier affiliates of IS in uh, Iraq and Syria. And the groups that are also involved in this, for example, there's Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, probably not as strong as ISK, but you know, probably about 500 people. But there are other groups which worry neighboring countries, and this is where they come in in the legitimacy debate. So, for example, there's a group called ETIM, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, very concerning for um, China because they uh, support the Uyghurs and want to get stuck in there. And, of course, the um, Chinese also met with Barada, one of the guys I mentioned earlier, yep. in terms of putting pressure on him to have an agreement uh, to not host jihadists in the future. It is the same with the Russians, with a group called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan. You know, want to go north to the stands, and that uh, concerns Russia in terms of the Caucasus. And there's various treaty organizations to do with that, both the Russians and the Chinese, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization for the Chinese and the um, Collective Security Treaty Organization for the Russians. So you've got this real, real complexity. So the real answer is not yet. Don't need to if it's just ISK, might need to if it's the other groups uh, there. But I, I do think the blowback and spillage will really be towards the east more than anywhere else. That is towards Pakistan and India and around there. And is the reality of these situations that you have to talk to terrorists? I mean, I remember, you know, going back 30 years in this country, British governments successively saying they would never talk to the IRA. Yet we found out years later that actually they were talking to the IRA in some ways. Is it just the fact of life that you have to talk to these people, however awful you may think they are? Well, it is in this case because the um, Taliban had a vision and more cohesion than was shown by the uh, Afghan government for the last 20 years. The fragmentation of the Afghan, Afghan government and the sort of uh, Gucci, uh, uh, Gucci Afghans, as they used to call it, didn't uh, seem to be a model for the future. That doesn't mean it will not be extremely difficult for the Taliban to govern. Uh, Afghanistan has never really been, uh, has really always been an incomplete state where the kaleidoscope of tri uh, tribal and ethnic groupings, Hazaris and Uzbeks, 
Tajiks, Baluchistan, Nuristanis, and the Pashtun, which the uh, Taliban are, gives this complexity, which makes it really, really difficult to have a centralized uh, government to rule. Now, we don't know what deals will be done with those ethnic groupings that I've just mentioned, yeah. whether there is some decentralized model, because it's really, really difficult to govern in Afghanistan in a centralized model, when even the, the, Af uh, the Pashtun, the Taliban, uh, it is anathema to them to have a centralized form of government. Control itself is not something that people like on the ground and in the village level. And, and how, do you, how do you assess the fact that I mentioned earlier that the Americans have just left behind $85 billion worth of up-to-date modern military equipment? I mean, what was the thinking? Because there must, there must have been a debate about what to do, with, to, to do with this equipment. What was the thinking, in your view? I don't think there would have been that debate for the simple reason most people forget that we actually finished combat operations in 2014. The footprint, including the American footprint, was training support and was pretty thin. It wasn't deployed all around the country, supporting the Afghan security forces. So there was no way in the time frame that was available that you could spike all the equipment around the 34 uh, provinces of Afghanistan. That is why you saw last night, for example, the final spiking of uh, both aircraft and uh, vehicles at the airport at Kabul. But there's absolutely no way you could have done that on a uh, pan-Afghan scale. No, extraordinary. And finally, can I ask you, do you think we'll be involved back in military operations of some kind in Afghanistan soon? Um, no, I don't. I, I see that uh, we'll go towards a CT counterterrorism model in the future where you use three things, really. You, you use over-the-horizon strike capability where necessary. You use the intelligence uh, that is available. And 2001 and 2021 are completely different in how we use uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and uh, big data. And um, thirdly, we just are very good now at home and security. People coming from these countries to come and attack us is very difficult. If you look at the UK, it's hard to find someone who traveled apart from the guy in Libya in Manchester in 2017. Most of our problems in the UK are second generation or converts, not people who traveled from Afghanistan or some of the other theaters of war, which other franchises of IS or Al-Qaeda have. I'd say that's right. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining us, Chip, here on GB News. So there we are. You've heard the debate. And I think in many ways what you were getting there was the pragmatic argument uh, that provided the Taliban behave, or at least behave within reason, not to Western standards, but within reason, that the Major General was saying, ultimately, uh, we may have to do some sort of deal with them, given how many other groups there are that are even more dangerous. I still feel deeply uncomfortable about it. Now, it's September the 1st, and within the next two days, nearly all the schools in this country will be back, and they'll be back without many of the provisions, many of the clusters and groups that had to be formed last time round. And some of the teaching unions already are saying, whoa, this is a problem. We're worried about this, and we're worried because the schools in Scotland have already been back a couple of weeks, and the infection rates, particularly in those 15, 16 and 17-year-olds, is spiking very, very quickly. So unions are saying we may well need to put back very, very tough controls in our schools. Well, joining me now is the chief executive of Parent Kind, John Jolly. John, good evening, 
and welcome Good to PB News. Just explain to our viewers what ParentKind actually is, please. So ParentKind is uh, an organisation that does everything it can to uh, bring home and school together to actually improve children's uh, uh, support par uh, parents' education. We're also the membership organisation for parent-teacher organisations across the uh, uh, England, Wales and Northern Ireland, and we have 13,000 members. Right, so sort of a PTA-type group in old-fashioned speak. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. So, John, you know, the schools are going back. It's a cause of celebration for many, uh, particularly after what our youngsters have been through in the last 18 months. Um, and the plan was for school life to, to begin again this week pretty much as normal. Um, how do you feel about the demands some of the trade unions are beginning to make? Well, I, th I think the first thing to say is parents have consistently... I mean, parents will be really pleased to be sending their children back to school. Okay. Parents have consistently told us, um, certainly since... Um, you know, since uh, just before ju just before the breakup of uh, of last term, that actually um, they would like to see their children back at school, no social distancing, no masks, and actually no no bubbles. Yeah. Um, but I think parents are also you know uh, realistic to know that actually sort of like um, you know c COVID continues to be with us. Um, and they'll welcome uh, schools making local decisions about what's safe, given the the local conditions in relation to COVID. And you know, the, the Scottish the, the Scottish experience of school return has you know has has I think rightly raised some concerns. Yeah. And I think you know the government itself will acknowledge um, that there is there is a, a significant risk of spikes in in in, in levels of COVID. So. You know, I think I think parents will welcome schools taking stringent steps to um, to 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 keep to keep young people safe from infection, um, and I think they'll also welcome um, a, a reduction in the use of uh, reduction in the use of um, the, uh, bubbles as a way of protecting young people. Um, but I think they will expect schools to be very clear about what they're doing. Um, and actually, make sure that they, they, they that, that they are informed. And I think what we saw over the last eighteen months was a real lack of clarity uh, about what is happening and what the measures are. And the measures change centrally um, um, very quickly. Um, and the sense that the sense came from from um, from from local school leaders who have acted really responsibly in terms of taking this forward. Yeah, I mean, it was difficult, um, sometime, difficult, sometimes difficult to work out what government policy was at times, wasn't it? Um, you know, I think that's I think that's I think that's fair, and I think it changed rapidly. You know, rapidly overnight. In January, for example, we were very clear: schools were going back. They were going back to um, they were going back into class, and it was fine. In the space of you know, a space of sort of like um, you know, between nine o'clock in the morning and sort of five o'clock at night, basically all schools were um, effectively closed for all but those who were vulnerable or key workers. Yeah, and but you can't tell me that bubbles are not going to come back because that'll be a decision taken by local heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think yeah, you know, parents might not want that, and I think I've been very concerned that actually it's led to large number of children's being out of schools. I think we're already seeing some heads saying they're going to bring they're going to continue to use bubbles as a way of actually managing COVID. Um, 
I, you know, I think I think there are alternatives that parents would support, which is you know testing, um, testing of, yeah. of those people who are close to somebody who tests positives, positive, and rather than actually sending everybody home um, to actually have enhanced testing for those people who've been in close proximity. So there are alternatives that I think parents will welcome and the government's been looking at, um, looking at things like ventilation and continuing to look at where appropriate, in particular school environments, again, will be something that parents will welcome. Well, we're going to watch this, John, very closely over the course of the next few weeks. And thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening here on GB News. In a moment, I will talk to you about why the use of the F word has become so unacceptable in British hospitals. Well, I'm asking tonight, should we recognise the Taliban and effectively become an ally of theirs against IS and other even more extreme groups? I ask for your opinions. Paddy, on email, comes on to me and says... He says, no, we don't need to be their friends. Let the Taliban and ISIS kill each other. One stone, two birds. Well, uh, it may well be that we finish up with a horrible civil war. Uh, within Afghanistan. Uh, But I think there's a much broader question here. You know, should we be recognising the Taliban? And I think Boris Johnson is pretty close to it. Uh, Maybe that's just a sad fact of life. I don't know. Uh, I struggle a little little bit with it. Uh, It seems to me they've been a terrorist organisation that we fought against for the last 20 years, and suddenly, overnight, they're virtually our friends. Ian says um, on GB Views... We should back whoever is in the interests of Britain. Well, the answer to that, Ian, is neither. You know, neither. And, in fact, it was interesting because a Times reporter called Lloyd was taken around the Bagram Air Base by the Taliban last night. And some of the Taliban fighters were saying, we want Bagram Air Base to be the place from which we launch global jihad. So let's not con ourselves. Let's not try and pick, oh, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. If you believe in Western values, none of these people are our friends, it seems to me. Alan on GB Views says, Allies with the Taliban, question mark. If history has taught us anything, it is that we should keep our noses out of Middle Eastern affairs. Well, it's back to the start of this programme, isn't it? As I said, we armed the Mujahideen, who then became the Taliban. We fought them for 20 years and now they've got $85 billion worth of modern military equipment. I mean, you really couldn't make this stuff up. Chris says, yes, sadly, I think we must come to some sort of agreement with them. Yeah, I mean, that's the pragmatic view and and I, as I say, I find it difficult, but perhaps that's where we will in the end finish up. Julie on email says, I think if it gives us the opportunity to get more people out, let's play the game, at least in the short term. That was what Boris Johnson was saying last night. My what the Farage moment, I can't believe this. Doctors are being told, don't use the F word in hospitals. Yet they're being offered training to improve their bedside manner after dozens of patients complained about being fat shamed 
by NHS staff. The Royal College of Physicians has said healthcare workers must not be afraid to raise the issue because of the very severe risks of obesity, but they should discuss it sensitively and avoid using stigmatising language. So what they're saying is, if you're a doctor or a consultant, you can't tell someone they're fat. You mustn't do that. It's offensive and people will complain. And we simply can't have NHS trusts receiving dozens and dozens of complaints. I don't, I'm not sure what doctors are supposed to say. Weight challenge, perhaps that's more acceptable. But we do have, you know, if, if somebody's in hospital with a chest condition who smokes or a liver condition who drinks, I'm sure then doctors wouldn't hold back in saying what they thought. And frankly, in my view, nor should they with people who've got severe weight problems. And I think the obesity crisis is something that perhaps is going to become the most overwhelming health problem in this country and maybe very, very quickly too. Certainly, the huge increase in diseases like diabetes and all the knock-on effects from that, you know, much of this is linked to people being severely overweight. So I'm sorry if the F word causes offence, and I will be talking uh, in a few minutes to William Hansen, a leading expert on etiquette, and I'm sure he wouldn't want the other F word ever to be used. Um, but I think in this context, this is utterly ridiculous. Now, my other what the farage is the cost of asylum seekers in this country. It's been costing us about a billion pounds a year to look after and house asylum seekers. But I understand that figure has now gone up a little bit. We're joining me is chairman of Migration Watch UK, Alp Mehmet. Alp, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening to you, sir. It's so a it delight was, to be here. Well, that's kind of you. Thank you. So it was costing us a billion quid a year to look after people who... And we say asylum seekers and, and, and some will get granted refugee status. But isn't the truth of it, these are all people who have illegally entered the country. About 60% of those who uh, apply for asylum usually come in in some sort of clandestine fashion uh, or irregularly or whatever you care to call it. So, yes, many, many of those have come in illegally or what you and I would call illegally. Yeah. Others might describe in another way. Um, it's not just the fact that it's costing uh, 1.4 billion now, Nigel. It's the fact of how quickly this has grown. So that's 40%, a 40% increase. 42%, I'm told, but there we are, yeah. 40% increase already in the space of about a year to 18 months. And guess what? If the, what you've been pointing to for a long time now, those coming across the channel and the huge numbers and the way that's been going up, as that goes up, so will the cost of asylum, because over 90%, something like 97, 98% of them actually apply for asylum. Yeah, and of course, it's been windy in the channel for the last 10 days or so. The last day the sailings happened, 828 uh, crossed the channel and were taken into the reception centre at Dover. I've no doubt once the calm weather returns, we'll get huge numbers. And Afghanistan, of course, Alp, is going to play a very big part in this. I mean, clearly... We owe a debt of honour to the people that genuinely helped us whilst we were there over those 20 years 
in Afghanistan um, and not to offer them refuge would, I think, be entirely wrong on, on any moral level. But I first heard Boris Johnson saying that we would offer that to interpreters. Then I heard a number of 20,000. Then I heard a number of 25,000. And I'm assuming that everyone that crosses the channel now, without documentation, will say they've come from Afghanistan. How are we going to deal with this? I think we've got to be extremely careful. All those coming over, frankly, will not be genuine asylum seekers. And of course, as we have always done, those who genuinely are asylum seekers who are needing asylum, refuge because of persecution and the rest of it, yes, of course, we will always help them. But to suggest, as has been mooted over the last few days, that because the Taliban has taken over, we've got to offer something like uh, 35 to 40 million Afghans asylum, that is batty, frankly. We've got to think of the consequences and the impact on people at this end as well. You cannot simply ignore the fact that it means a great deal of, of stress for those at this end already. Often those in greatest need and those, frankly, who uh, require housing and require medical attention uh, just as much as anyone else. We mustn't yeah, forget and I, that. I understand now that one of the people that boarded a flight at Kabul airport and is now in the United Kingdom was actually on a no-fly list because of suspected links to extremism. Yeah, and, and this, I'm afraid, is going to happen. Uh, what we do about that, well, what we do is we're extremely careful in the first place when we are uh, checking these people, when we're looking into their background, and we've got to be extremely circumspect about who we let in. That is an absolute must. Otherwise, the government will be letting down and putting at risk the security of our own people. That is not on. And finally, Art, when it comes to determining from a place like Afghanistan, uh, you know, who would genuinely uh, be in fear of their life because of this Taliban regime, and that would be, you know, a classical definition of somebody that was a refugee. We keep hearing talk of offshore processing centres. Is there a practical, sensible way in, w in which that might be done? I, I have no problem with offshore processing centres. For me, it's not so much what we do at that point, it's what happens afterwards. When the process ends, when we decide one way or the other, what happens to people then? Uh, the Australians, frankly, they don't even accept those who have uh, succeeded in their asylum claims. Very often, they go somewhere else, including the United States. However, uh, what we must not do is those who have been refused turned down, as often happens, mm -hmm. I'm afraid they have to be returned either back to where they came from or, indeed, from where they set off from. Very often, those coming across the channel have come from France. France must do yeah. more, must take well, them back. I'll, I'll one, tell you one last word. Th th what this this issue is not going to go do, away. No, please, please do. That the French and the EU, frankly, they could do 
a great deal more to deal with these asylum applicants at the point of entry into the EU or into France. At the moment, they do very little. That's a disgrace. Well, they did take 54 million quid the other week and no doubt they'd expect some more. Alp, we'll have you back on very, very soon. This issue is going to become a very big one over the course of the next few months. Now, in a moment, I'll be talking pints. I'll be with William Hansen. He's a leading expert in this country on etiquette. So I'll be minding my P's and Q's and absolutely will not be using the F word, I promise you. We will be going live to the White House at some point. Uh, in 10 minutes' time, Joe Biden is due to stand up and give a speech about the end of the war in Afghanistan. He's due to go there at exactly quarter two. He's nearly always late. As soon as he does, we will cut to Joe Biden. But before we do that, I want to introduce William Hansen, an etiquette expert and a coach in etiquette. So, William, welcome to Talking Pints. Thank you very much Cheers. for Cheers. Now, what are you drinking there? This is a gin and a bonnet. Mm. And it's, as you will know, it was a, a favourite of the late Queen Mother, and our current Queen does drink it off a lunchtime, I'm told. Um, it is strong. It's probably stronger than what you've got. Uh, as you know, De Bonnet is a fortified red wine, so yes. it's almost like a lighter port, uh, and then you mix... There's, there's nothing to dilute it other than ice, uh, and then you add it with gin. It's not what I would recommend to people if they've never had a drink before. No. Um, it's, it's fairly strong. And no. one is, quite frankly, enough. Now, etiquette, the word etiquette. Yes. I, grew, I grew up playing golf. OK. And in golf, the etiquette of golf was considered a very important thing. Mm. And it was kind of drilled into us from a young age. Yeah. And that was all about when to speak, when not to speak, where to stand, not to put anybody else off, uh, to behave in a sportsmanlike way. Um, and it was, a, I suppose, like a kind of a social code, yeah. a set of rules, and anybody that went wildly outside of that was, you know, pretty much looked down upon mm. and, not, and not considered the sort of person you, that you want to spend a Saturday morning yeah. playing golf with. So I was used to the word etiquette, but it's not a word that is used very much in, in no. general parlance. Where does it come from? Well, the, the word itself is, is of French origin. Uh, it goes back to the court of Louis XIV and sort of pre-Versailles. Uh, Etiquette was the old French word for ticket or label. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if, when you take the Eurostar, which I'm sure you're familiar with now, they, they talk... Not about, anymore. I've left the well, European not, no, Parliament, okay. but I used to you take were it familiar, <laughs> um, You would hear them talk about, you know, if you've got when they do the French translation, your etiquette. They still use the old French uh, word for your ticket. Um, but now it means a code of behaviour because Louis XIV was quite neurotic. I mean, he was onto something because there was a revolution two Louis later. Um, but he decided that you had to, you know, this point in the court, you bowed to this depth. And if you mm. were this status, you had so many ruffles on your sleeve. Um, so he codified etiquette as we know it. But, but actually, then etiquette was a different beast. It was quite exclusive. It was designed to exclude if you didn't know. And whilst there is still a little bit of that, particularly here in Britain, actually, good manners are inclusive. Well, there to bring people. Uh, this was my point. I mean, you know, you're drinking a gin and jubonnet and you've talked about the late Queen Mum and the Queen and we're on to Louis XIV. Yes. <laughs> um, which is 
fine. Um, yeah. Not mm. especially socially inclusive no, in terms no. of the audience. So the, que the question I want to ask you yeah. about, about, I mean, you know, you, you, you coach people mm. in etiquette. Yeah. Do you coach British people or foreign people about how to behave in this country? How does it work? Are you, I mean, are you telling them what to wear at Royal Ascot or...? They, there is that, I'll be honest, but, but it can be anything from the etiquette of a date to how they should set up their um, social media profile, whether it's a professional or, or um, social, social media profile. Um, I do a podcast called Help I Sexted My Boss, which is deliberately targeted at a younger audience who may not want to hear about Louis Fourteenth or know sort of how to dress at Royal Ascot, but are wanting to sort of know, oh, hang on, I did accidentally send something naughty to my boss. It was meant for someone else. What do I do? But this feels, I mean, I have to say, William, it feels all a bit like sort of class snobbery. That, that, Why? That, because it feels that this social uh, code, mm. this set of rules, yep. is designed for one particular strata of society. So are we saying that the rules that apply uh, to those that go into boxes at Royal Ascot mm. in, in top hats and tails. It's a, it's a different set of rules, isn't it, for those not of that privilege? Well, if you, if you are invited anywhere, if I invite you to a party tomorrow night, for example, and I put the dress code is, whether it's white tie or put, wear your pyjamas, you if see, you don't doing, like that dress code... But you see, code, but you're you doing think, it again. You're doing yeah. it again. What? All right. No, no, you're doing it again. And you're talking about white tie. Folks, how many of you regularly wear white tie? I mean... Oh, you wear it all the time, I would <laughs> Well, you might do, but this is the point. You yeah. know, it, it does seem to be a debate and a conversation for people mm. of a certain social level of standing mm. and, and finance. What is etiquette? What does it mean for more ordinary mortals? Well, is it, and, and is it important? Of course it's important. It's about being nice to people. And good etiquette and good manners are ageless, timeless, classless, priceless. Just be, treating people with respect is going to get you a lot further in life, regardless of your education, what job you do, uh, or anything like that which we might have um, some control or not over. It's just about being nice to people and doing the right thing and having respect for others. It is selfless, not selfish. Is etiquette deferential? It can be, depending on which field of, of uh, etiquette you're in. You can defer to, yes, it could be people coming from a different country. We're, we live, I know there's not a lot of travel at the moment, but it's a very cross-cultural society. Yeah. One of the very first clients that, that my company ever had, way back when, before I now own the company, but beforehand, was uh, a company, big sort of bank in the UK who went over to Japan to negotiate a contract they shook the number two's hand rather than the number one's hand from the Japanese delegation first. The Japanese, for whatever reason, took great offence at that and all walked out. Now, we might think, oh, that's a bit highly strung. But that's a cultural... But that's a cultural thing. Yes. And it's wrong for any culture to go to another culture and think, well, it's just like Britain. I can just behave like I do in Britain. Because it's, it's not. We all have our sort of quirks and there is no one culture which is more correct than another. It's when in Rome do as the Romans do. I was friends with the late Duke of Devonshire, Andrew Devonshire, a uh, wonderful man, mm. and he founded something, was patron of something, called the Campaign for Courtesy. Mm. And I had lunch with him when we talked about this. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, this was somebody born in the middle, late 1920s, mm. and yes, he was an aristocrat, but his observation mm. of British society was that we had lost our sense of being respectful yep. uh, with others, uh, and I think he was right.
Mm. And I'll tell you what I've noticed. I'll tell you what I've noticed with politicians. Yes. You know, because I've, you know, in Brussels particularly, mixed with a lot of the very senior politicians mm. in Europe and global leaders too. Yeah. Um, and I've seen a bit of it in this country. It's very interesting. Those that have risen up the ranks, whether it's professionally mm. in politics, whether it's financially, people who've made from nothing a lot of money. And I do notice a lot of people in quite prominent positions appear to treat uh, staff on a lower level. I mean, I, I'm not being derogatory in using that language, but mm. we'll, we'll treat waiters or waitresses or, mm. and just be blooming rude to them, and, and I've noticed that. So this goes both ways. Completely. It does go both ways, and, 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 and those with real class and money are nice to absolutely everyone, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I understand that. But generally, our interactions with each other... I mean, I think London is, has become a very unfriendly, mm. aggressive place. I think it's a city that's got no sense of community. Mm. Uh, I mean, in some streets where people are speaking 15 different languages, it's quite difficult to have a sense of belonging and a sense of community. What's gone wrong? Yes, we, we, London has become a bit like New York, where it is that sort of big city, we're time poor, we've got to get on, we, we don't have any time, we only have time for ourselves. And actually it's, it's, it's a slight contradiction because we've got all this sort of labour-saving technology in our lives that speed things up. We have microwave ovens that can cook something, your dinner's ready in three minutes if you want it to be. We have all, everything at social media, we can automate when our emails get sent, but yet nobody's got any time. And they don't have time for other people. They don't have time to do things properly. Everyone wants something for nothing. Mm. Um, they have lost the ability to, to know, actually, that sometimes something that does take a little bit longer is better than something that they can get yeah. instantly. And it's a very sort of me, me, <coughs> now, now society. And that doesn't sit well with civility and courtesy. I also think social media has changed mm. our sense of spatial awareness. Yeah. You know, I can be sitting on an aeroplane you know, reading the book, and somebody will walk up and literally get a, a phone oh, yeah. and start taking... I mean, you know, if they asked, I'd probably say, yes, no problem at all. Of course. Yeah. But I wonder whether social media had an, has had an impact huge, on... Huge, huge impact. Because the language changes. Yes. Because everything's abbreviated. Yep. But actually our sense of... And, and using anonymity, mm. I mean, the level of online abuse that... Uh, public figures in particular yeah. um, have, to, have to face. Mm. I mean, we've become a coarser world, haven't we? Yes, we have. And I, and I think, you know, there we go. Here's a nice modern example of etiquette for you that's got nothing to do with Louis XIV. Um, I, I would say, and I always teach, whether it's on my podcast, in lessons, whatever, that if you are going to use social media, you have to have your genuine name and a picture of your face. <coughs> you wouldn't go to a party with a paper bag on your head and go up and talk to somebody... It's exactly well, the same thing on social... Depends what the party well, was, I suppose. <laughs> <on the> party, <laughs> hopefully not, Josh. You obviously know more about those no. than me. But if you are going to use social media, you've got to, you've got to put your, your name and your face to your views. Uh, and nine times out of ten, you'll know this as, as well as anybody, the ones that do troll you are the anonymous people yeah, that have yeah. a picture of an egg or, yeah, yeah, or a yeah. fake oh, picture or absolutely. a cat or something. Um, and so etiquette does, does change to include the newer... Ways And I also think social media has given a lot of people a sort of false sense of friendship with people. You can sort of have a back and forth with anybody on social media if they're on social media. And certain people go, oh, my friend, my friend Adam. They've never met Adam in their life. Adam wouldn't 
probably know them if they bumped into the street. But Tony Blair, call me Tony. Yeah, but you're not. But you haven't. You're not Tony's friend. You haven't become Tony's friend. You have to earn that friendship, and it's going to take more than someone just saying, "Oh, call me Tony," or you sending them a few direct messages on Instagram. I have to admit, when I left school, I was one of those. I didn't go to university. Mm. Um, my headmaster said to me. Well, apart from saying what a disappointment I was. <laughs> but Headmaster said to me, I was heading into the city, in, in, into the commodity business, and he said to me, now look, he said, you make sure that your hair's neat and tidy, your fingernails are clean, your shoes are polished, and you call everyone sir until they tell you to stop being so stupid. <laughs> and I think, in a sense, that was an etiquette lesson. That yes. was me going out into the world, and it was a pre-Big Bang city, mm. but be well turned out, you know, mm. be, be, be very polite to people. Totally. And, and, and then when they tell you, well, actually, you, you, you know, you can call me Bill, uh, then it's fine. Is that now horribly outdated as a concept? I, th I think probably now you don't need to say sir. I would just say Mr Farage, Mr Smith. Use, yes. use, that's sort of probably the most formal that people need, need to go to until yes. they say, no, call, yes. me, call me Adam or, or whatever. Um, but, yes, you know, we do... First impressions do count for, for so much of it, whether it's someone's shoes, their watch, what sort of clothes they're wearing. It doesn't have to be the most tailored suit. It could be something from the high street. But if you're wearing it nicely and you sort of have the confidence, people are going to judge you. And although it's not... On paper, it's not great that we judge people so quickly, it does happen. It's something we inherit from the animal kingdom. If a mouse sees a cat, it makes a very snap judgment in order to survive. And humans do exactly the same thing as well. And sadly, we've now, I mean, I've found doing my job for the last 14 years that people are sort of, well, their default is, oh, no, etiquette doesn't matter, it is outdated, or we don't need this anymore, because perhaps maybe they just don't know. They don't know these rules because it's not taught in schools, it's not taught at... No. So, part if, of all so, so if I send you an 18-year-old school leader yes. or a 21-year-old graduate... Yes. ..and they're going out into the big wide world and pitching for jobs mm -hmm. and, they can, and they've got to get their social media accounts right, I mean... Yeah. You know, are these the sort of people that, you know, do parents send you kids and say, can you help them get on in the world? Yes, we do. We do a lot of, um, in this kind it's so interesting, the market. In, in the UK, we do a lot of one-to-one -one tuition because the Brits or people that live in Britain are very, you know, we don't, we, the neighbours can't know that we've mm. had etiquette tuition. So the sort of the public courses where anyone can sign up to, to turn up to work better in other countries where they, they don't have these hang-ups that the Brits have, the net curtain sort of twitch. Do we still have that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, people do still sort of, oh, well, they, them next door, you know, they've got this. And, of course, we're judging people. And I think what the only thing that has changed is that it has become verboten to sort of not uh, talk about it, and we have to pretend that class doesn't exist. And it, it's awful that it does exist and it shouldn't exist. It but it is, does. It is ridiculous. But you can have fun at it, fun with it. I mean, look at Keeping Up Appearances, which did it so well, because it completely poked fun at the whole thing. It wasn't going, <laughs> this doesn't exist. It was going, well, it does exist. We might as well just have a laugh about it. Which was done very effectively. Done very effectively. So you've made a living out of this. This, this is hmm. your career. Yes, I know. Pe people think that, sort of, you know, I, I've got some sort of other job. Um, but, you know, HMRC seem to accept it, just about. Getting insurance is interesting, cos nothing comes up when you type in what your job is. <laughs> um, so and I, you appear on daytime television programmes and... Well, yeah, I mean, look, the media side of things is just the, the sort of the fun bit. But, you know, there is a serious job behind it, whether it's working with royal households or businesses or individuals or teaching... I mean, I, I remember, actually, my favourite day at work, 
years ago, in the morning I was teaching a group of five-year-olds, literally very basic, you know, fork in this hand, knife in that hand, wipe your mouth, please, and I leave the table. And then in the afternoon I was working with some diplomats from Russia, teaching them all sorts of things that the four-year-olds would have been completely against. So you, you have the yin and the yang and you have to switch gears quite a lot between, okay, we're out of teaching four-year-olds and now teaching Russian diplomats, which at times might be the same sort of concept, but generally was, was a different discipline. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of variety. Which... Should we post-Covid be shaking hands or not? Um, yes, I think it will come back. I mean, handshakes disappeared in the, in the, with the Black Death as well, so it was sort of, we've had this sort of reticence to shake hands before, not in our lifetimes, and they came back slower than they've... I mean, I've shaken, shaken most people's hands here today because they've offered their hand. Yes. I'm comfortable shaking hands, but still some people will not want to shake hands. Fine, we'll do a touch this greeting, whether it's the namaste, the hand on heart, just a nod, a wave. And I think what we now need to do sort of between now and maybe Christmas or whenever COVID sort of is, is sort of in the, mm. the rearview mirror as much as it will be, is just be a slightly more proactive and on our guard when we meet new people. Are they going to want a handshake? Are they going to want a wave or, or something? Contact Tough judgment, that, though, isn't it? It is, it is. So I would just say sort of hang back <coughs> a beat. Let them uh, initiate. Right. Is that the big tip for the day? Yes. Just, and just, just consider what, what would they like. Consider them, not you. Hopefully they should be considering you right. and you're considering... Well, there we are. Well, that was, that was etiquette advice in this pandemic, hopefully before too long, post-pandemic age, and I hope, having had William Hansen on Talking Pints, we'll all be a little bit plighter and a little bit nicer. So there's no sign of Sleepy Joe. No sign whatsoever. They've told the world that the most important global leader will appear at... At, at 7.45 our time, 2.45 Eastern time, and talk to the world about the end of the war in Afghanistan. And it is now eight minutes past that, and there's no sign of Sleepy Joe whatsoever. Well, as you know, those that watched the programme last night, I do not think he's fit for, for that office, but there we are. So we'll finish with Barrage the Farage, where you fire in questions which I get to answer without ever having seen them first. Laura is up first. Do you think the City of London will ever go back to how it was before the pandemic? Uh, it'll never go back to how it was before Big Bang. Um, and I have to say, the City of London that I worked in, I mean, the etiquette was impeccable. Um, you know, my word is my bond. Everything was a handshake. Everything was done on trust. I'm not sure the lifestyle was too healthy, though. Are we going back to that? No, I fear we just will not be. James asks, how long do you think it will be for the European Union to dissolve? If I knew the answer to that, I'd be straight down to the nearest betting shop. Um, I don't know what it will be that, 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 that finishes off the European Union, but I do still believe very strongly it's an entirely artificial construction. Uh, and I just think it's wrong at every level. Provided the nation-states of Europe are functioning democracies, there will always be peace in Europe. Uh, and it's a Europe... It's a continent unlike any other. You travel 100 miles through Europe, 
you have different wines, different cheeses, different languages, different cultures, different forms of etiquette, I've no doubt. Um, and, and that's what makes Europe so amazing. So vive la différence. And the idea of the whole thing should be governed by a bunch of bureaucrats in Brussels making rules that harmonise, homogenise and pasteurise everybody, I find total anathema. Anne asks on email, pensioners are very angry at the government's proposal to ditch the triple lock linking pensions to earnings. Can you recommend a party that would treat pensioners decently? Look, you know, wages have gone up. Wages have gone up. We, we've got wage inflation of about 8% in this country at the moment. There is no way. There is no way uh, that the triple lock's going to be kept. And I'm going to do one last one. What I'm asked, is there, is there another contender than Donald Trump for the Republican Party. The only one could be Ron DeSantis, but I still think Trump is the one that's got the base and Trump is the one that gets the blue-collar support in those swing states across the middle of America. Well, I'm done for today. I'll be back tomorrow.